Six Walks is a series of audio walking tours, commissioned by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, ACCA, and released in the lead-up to the forthcoming exhibition and research project Who's Afraid of Public Space, opening in the summer of 2021 into 2022. Continuing ACCA's series of big-picture exhibitions, Who's Afraid of Public Space explores the role of public culture, the contested nature of public space, and the character and composition of public life itself, engaging with contemporary art and cultural practices to consider critical ideas as to what constitutes public culture and to ask, and who might it be for? Six Walks continues a rich history of artists, writers and thinkers engaging with, describing and depicting the various pleasures of walking. This program began as an invitation to six Melbourne-based writers to develop a narrative response to an area of the city that held a particular interest to them, either personally or professionally, socially or culturally. The six walks were largely written while under strict COVID-related lockdowns, at a time when walking was one of the few freedoms afforded to those of us in Melbourne. The series release has been timed to coincide with the easing of these restrictions, allowing for expanded horizons and encouraging a renewed interest in our surrounding natural and urban environments and to the narratives, knowledge and histories latent within them. Across six walks, writers Idil Ali, Tima Ball, Tony Birch, Sophie Cunningham, Eleanor Jackson and Christos Shokas take us from the Birrarung to Royal Park, from regal cinemas to abandoned military defence force bases, tracing desire lines as much as designated paths. They tackle concerns from public housing to motherhood, colonisation, migration, gentrification, restoration, surveillance, resilience, leisure and pleasure. In following their words, walking becomes a form not only of art and literature, but of thinking, observing, research, remembering, poetry, protest, mapping and making. What is revealed is a complex portrait of Melbourne as a city that is constructed from diverse, diverging and overlapping cultural, social, political, economic and historical paths. In this episode of Six Walks, Sophie Cunningham invites you on a walk through Royal Park. Established in 1854, Royal Park's very existence was both a gesture towards the colonial administrator's belief in the role of public spaces to improve the health of the Newtown citizens and a strategic way of building a green fortress around the city. That is, parks were established as a way of displacing the traditional owners, the Wurundjeri people, from significant lands. Sophie's walk begins at the Burke and Wills Monument, marking the starting point of the explorer's ill-fated expedition. On the 20th of August 1860, a crowd of 15,000 people stood in Royal Park to farewell 19 men, their camels and horses, before they headed north across the continent. Sophie then escorts us to the Royal Melbourne Zoological Gardens to contemplate the life of the zoo's first elephant, Rainey, and to reimagine Rainey's walk from Port Melbourne to the zoo, late one night in 1883. She continues her walk through remnant bushland and down through the white skinks habitat, ending her walk at one of the city's newest wetlands, the Trinwaren Tambor Bellbird Waterhole. Sophie's narration of her walk is interspersed with readings from her collection of essays, City of Trees, supported by the sonic landscapes of composer Martin Friedel. Sophie Cunningham is the author of six books, including City of Trees and Melbourne. She is a former publisher and editor and is now an adjunct professor at RMIT University's Nonfiction Lab. Martin Friedel studied science but turned to music in the 1970s and has worked as a composer across a wide range of form and genre, from theatre and film to opera and contemporary classical music. His work has been recognised by a number of awards, including an Emmy. His sonic art project, Sounding Royal Park, was supported by the City of Melbourne COVID-19 Arts Grants. Six Walks has been conceived to be ideally listened to in situ, with headphones on a personal mobile device. Maps, directions and access notes are included with each walk to assist with orientation. ACCA reminds participants to be aware of their surroundings and to adhere to road safety guidelines at all times. Please note that when undertaking a walk, participants must assume personal responsibility for any liability, injury, loss or damage in any way connected with their experience of six walks. 
Recorded in podcast format, Six Walks can also be listened to from anywhere and at any time. Text versions of each walk are also available for download. My name's Sophie Cunningham and I'm going to take you on a walk through Royal Park. Royal Park is on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. The walk we're going to go on takes place on stolen land. I pay my respects to the Elders past, present and future. This walk starts at the Birkenwills Memorial Cairn that stands between Royal Park's Grassland Circle and MacArthur Avenue. It was built to commemorate Birkenwill's expedition to the Gulf of Carpentaria, on, which left from this place on August the 20th, 1860. The Victorian government had sponsored the exhibition to make the first south-north crossing for Australia, a distance of more than 3,000 kilometres earlier that year. This cairn was built in 1890. The expedition comprised of six Irishmen, five Englishmen, four Indian and Afghani camel drivers, three Germans, an American, 23 horses, six wagons, 26 camels, and 20 tonnes of baggage. They were carrying food to last two years, and among many other objects, a cedar-topped oat camp table, chairs, rockets, flags, a Chinese gong. I've read talk of a piano, but that strikes me as absurd. And I think, like to think it might be a metaphor for the hubris that killed Burke and six of his men. But of course all this, this was to come. On that day, on August the 20th, there were endless speeches before a crowd of some 15,000 people. The in fact, the, the speeches went for so long the expedition didn't leave until 4pm. This is at a time of year when it would have been dark by five. When they did leave, they headed towards Royal Park South Gate, which is slightly counterintuitive. To, to the modern modern way of thinking about it, but suggests what the layout of the park was like then, that there was more cleared cleared land to the south. Some of the carts got bogged down in the mud at that side of the park, but they finally caught up with their um, the members of the party that were on horseback later that night. If you want to follow in the in the footsteps of, of the Burke and Wills expedition on that first day, you can walk past what were once cattle yards near Park Drive. You turn north up Flemington Road. You cross the main bridge over Mooney Ponds Creek. You could see the Flemington Hotel across the way that was established in 1848. These days, of course, Flemington Road feeds into the Tullamarine Freeway and is a dozen lanes wide. But then it was a rutted dirt, dirt track. They would have headed left up Mount Alexander Road, which already existed back then and had been one of the main tracks taken by those who walked to the gold fields. The expedition got as far as Queen's Park up in Mooney Ponds, very near the RSL club there. They blazed a tree at the site to mark the spot. The tree died soon after but was maintained, albeit as a grim and ivy-covered stump, out of respect to the blaze carved onto it and the people who'd carved it, even though it was finally removed in 1938. The memorial is close to a magnificent stand of sugar gums, which were planted sometime between 1860 and 1890. And one of the significant things about this park is its commitment to the planting of Australian native plants, even if they're not from this very area. But of course, it's also, the Cairn is also only a few hundred metres west from where both Burke and Wills were eventually buried in Melbourne Cemetery. And that's one of the things I love about Melbourne and indeed this park the way layers of history are nestled so closely together through the city. Just a little bit on, on the death of Burke and Wills and their men, and indeed many Indigenous people they met, not many, but uh, more than a dozen that were met along the way by both Burke and Wills and groups that were sent out to rescue them. So offers of health, help and friendship were extended by First Nations people before the expedition went through many lands, through, through many nations' lands. But the explorers had guzzled limited water reserved. They fished and hunted indiscriminately, albeit unwittingly. But they were generally behaving like boorish intruders and tensions rose. But towards the end, in extremis, Burke, Wills and another of the men, King, did begin to watch the habits of the local people. They ate a porridge or bread made from the seeds of an aquatic fern called nardu which was filling but not nutritious enough to sustain life in the long run. And some have actually argued that they were, po that they were poisoned by the Nardu, 
because they didn't prepare it properly. Whatever the truth of this, or whatever the details, um, hypothermia, beriberi, and general exhaustion contributed to their deaths. But this is what these, uh, the role of that plant in, in the deaths of several members of the expedition is one of the reasons why Tom Nicholson made his acclaimed video work, Monument for the Flooding of Royal Park, right very close to where I'm standing. It's a sequence of historical photographs of various Birkenwills monuments in parallel to a text describing an imaginary monument. A temporary blanketing of Royal Park and a red field of Nardu. And the point of the, this work was to, to engage with the 19th century Melbourne history and, and the way memorials used to um, be built in a fairly reflexive way without really considering what colonisers were doing, doing to the various nations that they, that they passed. There are multiple, one of the most interesting aspects of the Birkenwell story I have found was reading some of the stories passed down orally by First Nations people who saw Birkenwells walk through their various lands. Um, one such story concerns a fight, the witnessing of a fight between Wills and Burke after Burke rejected food from, from local people. Another story is that Burke actually murdered Charles Grey. Another that King murdered Burke. It's not, this might be literally true or a moral story hinting that King would have been justified in killing Burke. King is the only man who survived the, the expedition uh, of, of the people who actually made the um, made it to north, the north of Australia. And he survived by living with local people for 10 weeks. Indeed, he fathered a child. And his descendants still live in the area today. The reason why I mention these particular version of events, even though they're not necessarily my stories to tell, is I really want people to think about the way history lives in place and the different histories that live in place. And as I've already said, one of the reasons why Royal Park is such a special place is because it holds these kind of stories and I believe you can feel them here still.
Why are you listening to the conversation? I'm recording the frog sounds. So you're not listening and recording to those people? No, not people. No. Huh? Not people, animals, birds. Are you sure, mate? Yeah. How can you reassure that? There's no people around here, just you and me. As you've been walking, you would have been listening to the sounds of uh, sound artist composer Martin Friedel, who has been working on a project called Sounding Royal Park, and he did a lot of his recordings during the period of the pandemic. And I think he, like I, found that the opportunity to spend time in Royal Park during this difficult time really well, for me, it was sanity-saving. Uh, I can't speak for Martin, but I know that we both got a huge amount of pleasure from our work here. I'm now walking towards the Melbourne Zoo, the entrance of the zoo, and this is a significant day. It's noisier than it might normally be, but I've decided I think I should let that sound stand because what we see is dozens of people lining up for the opening of the zoo, first day back after 112 days of lockdown. In fact, the zoo might have been closed for even longer. So I don't know how the animals will feel, but there's certainly a lot of birds around who um, are watching, watching the queues. So I'm just gonna to sit to one side rather than right out the front of the entrance. And in part that's because I am, so, so the microphone works, I'm having to talk without using my mask. And I don't want to be kind of close to people while I do that. But it's an exciting day to be here and I'm a member of the zoo and I think after I have taped this walk I'm going to come back and say hello to some of the animals. So, this, the zoo was originally, or grew out of, the Acclimatisation Society of Victoria and it was the first which was established actually at the Melbourne Botanic Gardens in 1857. But for various reasons, including um, swampiness and floods, that site was unsuitable. So the society was given 550 acres in the park for zoological purposes. But an acclimatisation society is very different to what we think call a zoo today. The objective of the society was to acquire exotic animals and birds that were going to be potentially useful in the new colony and acclimatise them to Australian conditions. So those animals would include sheep, and I, I do believe some foxes are in there, um, starlings all kinds of birds, some of which have gone on to become pests, but maybe not all, I'm not sure. Um, but at a certain point, 50 acres uh, proper was um, reserved in the centre of the park and a building was built, that was in 1862. And the, the institution became, became what we think of as the Melbourne Zoo today, even though that, that took quite a long time, that, that um, journey, if you like. Um, Albert Lesouf was the first residential manager of the Acclimatisation Society. He was the son of William Lesouf, who'd been a, a protector of the Aborigines on the, of Gorbin and a long member of the Aboriginal Protection Board. These connections helped Lesouf, the younger Lesouf, establish an encampment in the zoo in the 1880s, which accommodated um, some 20 people. I found this a particularly disturbing image, I have to say, because this camp became an ethnographic village and was included in the Australia centenary celebrations and Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people who were living in Corranduk near Hillsville were brought back to their traditional lands um, to perform and weapons were arranged around them. They were asked to throw boomerangs while onlookers stood around and watched and stuffed animals were added to the exhibit to add, to, you know, contribute to the atmosphere. I suppose it is worth mentioning at this point that, that there were very different 
views and understandings of, of what was appropriate behaviour both to our First Nations people, there still are um, very inappropriate views, uh, inappropriate behaviours take place. But nonetheless, I think the intention was uh, not as cruel as that sounds, even though it is hard to think about that kind of making people perform their lives without feeling very uncomfortable. This happened in zoos around the world, not just in Australia. And a significant part of the story of the Melbourne Zoo becoming the place it is now, something closer to what we think about as a zoo today, is the story of Rani the elephant. Rani was the first elephant in Australia. Um, and the reason why Rani was brought to the zoo was because once they became a formal zoo, they needed to charge entrance, entrance fees, which needed, mean, meant they needed a star attraction, and Rani was that star attraction. She was also a gift from the King of Siam. She arrived in Melbourne from the Calcutta Zoo on March the 5th, 1883. Now, that trip lasted for some weeks on a, on a boat, on a ship. She was tethered by chains to the deck with a shed of sorts built over her head. During one particularly bad storm, she is reported to have wrapped her trunk around the iron, the, the iron columns of the hut to support herself. The ship docked in Port Melbourne and she was taken to the police station at 113 Bay Street. These days 113 has dropped off the map, but number 115 is still there and is now, um, I think, is part of the same building. It's a lawyer's office now. Rani was walked late at night in the dark so people of the city wouldn't panic and horses wouldn't stampede. That sounds kind of crazy now, but there are many historical records of people of big cities reacting in very dramatic, in fairly extreme ways when they first saw an elephant. They are indeed magnificent creatures. So, I couldn't find a record of the exact route that Rani walked, but when I traced her steps, I walked the most obvious roads that existed back in 1883, up Bay Street to City Road and Whiteman Street. I assume that she crossed at the Yarra Falls Bridge, which is an early iteration of the Queen's Bridge. She walked up, or she walked up, I walked up, assuming that she may have, along William Street, then through the relative quiet of the Flagstaff Gardens, past the empty Victoria Market. And both of these, the Flagstaff Gardens and the markets existed when Rani did her walk. Then you can head up through darkness up the Royal Parade. They wouldn't have, I don't think there would have been the same kind of street lights back then. Uh, if, well, there wouldn't have been the same kind of street lights back then. And if you follow, if you take that walk late at night, it's really quite uncanny as you walk into the edge of Royal Park, just in the south, from the southeastern corner. And you get a sense of how other this place would have, would have felt. And I often think about her walking through the darkness towards her servitude, none of her own kind with her, no possibility of shared language. Elephants are incredibly social animals. And what I keep asking myself was, was she lonely? Rani's reported to have walked the nine kilometres from the police station very calmly until she saw the zoo, at which point she attempted to run. I'm not sure if it's the smell of the other animals or their calls, or whether she imagined what lay ahead. Public viewing, six days a week, Monday to Saturday from 11 to 12 midday and from 2 p.m. till 4 p.m. The, the Society's Minute Book, I assume that's the Royal Melbourne Society's Minute Book for March 19th, 1883 records that she was gentle and in good health and that she was undertaking training so she could give people rides which it was reckoned she'd be able to do after two weeks. The impetus was pragmatic, as I've mentioned, and the age reported in the early 1890, in early 1890, how the fast-growing monster, as they called her, ate. But she was also reported to be a favourite with children. It, as she was called, earned, earned her, had to earn her own living. Her upkeep amounted to 150 pounds a year. She managed to take in an income of £170 a year. And during her 21-year residence, she contributed to 5% of the zoo's annual in uh, income. Rani died on December the 18th, 1904. In her final year, she was not as gentle as she'd once been. In particular, she wouldn't let anyone near her, month, in, in, near her mouth. 
and after she died it was discovered that one of her molars had grown five inches longer than it should have been and caused her an enormous amount of pain. One thing that makes me feel slightly better was that in the end she wasn't alone. She became very attached to one of her keepers and when he lay on the grass sleeping or resting she would stand over him and wave flies from his face with her trunk. If people tried to approach him when he was resting she'd become angry and force the visitors back. So she had a friend. I'm not going to get to into the politics of whether or not elephants should be kept in zoos, but I suppose the way I'm talking gives some indication of my feeling on this. But I do want to talk about Queenie, who was Rani's successor, and she arrived in the, in the zoo, at the zoo, in 1902. She gave rides for 40 years to up to 500 children and parents each day. She walked an estimated 165,000 kilometres around and around the same enclosure. And hard surfaces are painful for an elephant's incredibly sensitive feet. They often effectively hear through their feet. And many of them kept in zoos, many elephants who die in zoos actually die of arthritis after years of pounding bitumen. And foot and joint problems are the main, most important health issue for captive ele elephants. Queenie's keeper was a man called Wilfred, Wilfred Lawson and Kenneth Brown, who was his nephew, remembers riding on Queenie's head as a schoolboy. I would help our uncle wash her down, Brown says. It was a big job to wash her down, wipe all her, her all over and dry her. She was given a lot of rubbish to eat by children. She had to have her mouth cleaned out. She, uh, she was apparently a very gentle creature and would turn over during her bath and play and enjoy the company of those who looked after her. But that said, Lawson used to hit Queenie with a stick. Quite a lot of people, um, witnesses, have commented on the way she was treated. I didn't like my uncle hitting her, Browner said. He used to belt her to get her past the monkeys. I don't, I feel that it's, <laughs> I suspect it's an indication of how Queenie felt about Lawson that she trampled him to death in 19, 1944. And as a consequence, despite her years of service to the zoo, she was shot. At the time, the zoo said it wasn't because of her attack on Lawson, it was because World War II had made it hard to afford to feed all the animals kept at the zoo. Back to Rani briefly. When she died, there are a few million African elephants and about 100,000 Asian elephants. Today, there are an estimated 500,000 African elephants left. Far, far less wild Asian elephants. Elephants weep for the loss of their kin when they see their bones. And the reason I'm talking about Rani and Queenie is because we should be weeping for them too. I don't want to lose these magnificent animals from the earth as, as we are in danger of, of losing, losing them. And I do understand that it's one of the reasons why zoos um, continue to keep elephants is because they are so endangered in the wild. But I don't just want us to weep for elephants and be sad when we think about Rani. I would really like us to fight for the, these creatures' survival. I'm now walking west with the zoo wall to my right and a stand of trees to my left. And I'm walking towards the tram line that crosses uh, Elliott Avenue. And I've always loved seeing the trams go through Royal Park, but understandably, I suppose, there was not such feelings of excitement about the idea of there being a tram line when it was actually um, built in 1916, and there were a lot of concerns. But you can basically follow a sealed track all the way down to um, Bren's, um, Bren's Drive. So we're going to walk there, and then I'll pick up I'll pick up my chat again at that point. I'm standing on the corner of Bren's Drive and you, this is a point where you can veer, angle off to the right slightly along a dirt path which will take us towards the residential streets that edge the park and then we skirt back up into the, into the bushland. If you look up Bren's Drive, you're looking towards the urban camp. Um, there's lots of, there's Anzac Hall, Century, century posts, all kinds of um, things that are interested in that kind of the built history of the park. It's, it's an area really worth exploring. Also worth exploring, but I won't be taking you there today, is some of the remnant bushland 
you'll see it up to the right. It's a grassy woodland area. That is one of the significant bits of remnant bushland left in the park. I'm taking you to more remnant bushland, slightly more rugged, maybe less aesthetic and planted in some ways, um, that you walk through, the section I'm taking you to, you walk through it to get down to the, um, the wetlands in the corner of the park. So you're heading towards Manningham Street and Southgate Street, the corner, and we're going to walk down Manningham Street.
You head down Manningham Street as it veers to the right and then you will find yourself walking under a railway bridge and a pedestrian bridge which um, the pedestrian bridge I think is an extension of the capital city trail. So there'll be some stairs to your immediate right past those two quite small bridges. Or under, you, you, you walk under the bridges, you turn right, walk up the stairs and walk for, uh, for about 100 metres, maybe slightly more. Um, maybe it's even 200 metres along the capital city trail which is sealed. So I wanted to talk more now about um, remnant vegetation. It's one of the most significant things about Royal Park is that it's the only um, Melbourne Park in a Melbourne parkland that has maintained any of its um, original vegetation and it's the only parkland that has been consciously planted since the beginning to try and uh, maintain the look of what you might describe as pre-invasion pre Melbourne. When Royal Park was first established some land was used for grazing and that led to the trampling of some native plants. Um, so that was an early challenge to, for, the, for, for the kind of retention of some of this remnant parkland. But in, actually as recently as, as 2010, the City of Melbourne won national recognition for its implementation of a 1984 master plan which was dedicated to preserving and developing the natural landscape, um, this natural landscape so close to the city centre. Uh, and while some of the original vegetation has been lost, there has been deliberate planting and preservation of native trees to help maintain the appearance of the park um, for 150 years. So as early um, in the 1860s, between 1860 and 1890, a lot of the first uh, uh, stands, of, or a lot of the first plantings were, were native trees. Um, the acclimatisation gardens, later the zoological gardens, that was the area that was planted with exotics. But the air outside this, there was a real de a dedication to maintaining the original character of the area. Some of this was a, um, a genuine passion for the, um, ideas of uh, indigenous plantings, if you like, um, of, of native plantings. And there was um, one of the Surveyor Generals, Clement Hodgkinson, Deputy Surveyor General Clement Hodgkinson, Hodgkinson was a keen advocate for the retention of indigenous trees in designed landscapes, including Yarra Park and the Fitzroy Gardens. But another thing that ended up being in the favour of Royal Park in this matter was that it was very poorly funded. Um, the the parkland didn't, didn't really have a lot of financial support and native trees were grown because they were going, would manage drought better, which of course um, with climate change and the fact that many parks around Australia, around Melbourne, around the world um, are having to, to replant with um, changed conditions in mind, Royal Park is um, being helped by these kind of early decisions in, in the management of the park. Some of those early plantings were actually donated by Ferdinand von Mueller, who was the director of the Botanic Gardens and a trustee of Royal Park. So you'll see um, there's river red gums which have been retained along Gatehouse Street, the sugar gums that I mentioned near uh, the Burke and Wills Cairn. Uh, both, both are examples of um, both the keeping of some trees and the planting of trees that, that were Australian natives. So now we're just veering off to the left to a, it's a dirt path, you'll see a gate you know, sort of like that, three metres away off, off um, the Capital City Trail. And the gate is there to keep trail bikes and mountain bikes out. Um, it's very, as a pedestrian, there's no problem at all get, getting in here. And this is my, my favourite spot in the park. 
you'll see lots of native grasses on either side of you, uh, notably kangaroo grass and probably other types of grasses I don't know the name of. There's wattle, I think it's black wattle. There are she oaks, and she oaks have been a significant part of, of, of Melbourne's early uh, landscape or <laughs> of this entire area's um, early landscape. And when I say remnant, I mean that there's been no formal planting in this particular area, this particular track. So it's, I assume there's some basic maintenance done, but the idea is that plants that have always grown here are left to just um, seed naturally. I think this path goes for 100 metres, a couple of hundred metres anyway. To the left you'll see very sporting fields and to the right there is the railway cutting which is quite deep and through through rock and there was a great outcry when this when this railway line was was cut through the park and I understand this more even more than I understand the tram concern about the tramway the trams which I've become quite attached to um, so it was in the 1880s and many were concerned it had ruined the park but it does certainly mean, make it a bit trickier to get from this section of the park to the, um, to the area where the zoo and the Birkin Wills Cairn is. And it's one of the reasons why it's not a straightforward walk uh, if you have a disability. The, path, the paths aren't as clear and so it's a slightly wilder, wilder corner. This is a good area for bird watching. I mean the whole park of Royal Park is, but um, bird watchers often come up to this ridge, which is, if you're walking it, you'll find there's a, sort of, there's a gentle slope, and you actually end up being quite high. You can look down to the down to the railway line, across to the urban camp, and indeed across to um, you can hear the sound of the Eastern Freeway. You can see the sporting ovals I've mentioned and soon you'll be able to see the wetlands which I'm going to talk about in more detail. There'll be, the birds that you'll probably see up here, so I'm told by those who know more about this issue than me, are miners, little ravens, red wattle birds, honey eaters. Um, you might see, well the welcome swallow you see further down, in fact not that, that they like, they like the, um, the ovals. You might be lucky enough to see a, a spotted pardalote, which they're really beautiful, or a grey strike, um, shrike thrush. I'm just going to leave the tape on. I just want you to hear the hear the piece, really, as as, as we walk along here. I'm looking at some wattlebird now. In fact. Okay, well, up, um, I'll leave you to finish this walk without me talking in your ear, but keep walking along this path until you come to the, um, the gate at the other end, and I'll take up again there. Okay, I'm approaching the gate now, and I hope you have had a sense of what makes this particular slightly scruffy bit of the park so special. I think it's the sense that you're actually in bushland. You could be... Well, you certainly don't feel like you're in a city and, and for that, that I treasure it. We're now, you now walk, there are several different paths you can take. There's certainly, if you hit the capital city trail, you can then immediately take the dirt path that's immediately to your left or one of the little dirt paths that slightly before the capital city trail. And all these paths wind down to a slightly better made but still um, unsealed path. And you'll notice that there's lots of rocks piled all around. These are the remains of an old rubbish um, rubble dump site in Royal Park West in the 1990s, or that was uh, existed until the 1990s. And there was a highly significant remnant population of the white of white skink was discovered in this site. So it was reclaimed and replanted to provide an open grassy area with rocks and logs providing basking sites and shelter for the skinks. Um, and they, they burrow under the rocks, they lie on the rocks when it's sunny and warm. I might even, it's quite a warm morning, I might even see some if I'm lucky. 
I'm assuming actually, as, as this just came to me as I was walking, that the piles of rocks might well have actually been left from the days of when they blasted the railway line through. I'm not sure, I'll have to ask someone about that. But these, are, these there's lots of things that are special about these little skinks. I find myself not even sure if a skink is very really different to a lizard. Apologies for those who know more about these things than me. But they do give birth to live young and uh, rather, rather than eggs. And this is the only, I think, the only known population close to the urban centre left, left in Melbourne. So I'm going to stop talking for a bit and, and look out for them. You'll actually come to a sign that tells you a little bit more about the skink. And that's from the, after that sign, you, um, the path winds down to some stairs and to the right and you'll find yourself looking at a sports, some kind of change room or something and, and, and an oval. And then you move, walk to the right towards the wetland. So I'll pick it up again there. Well, I was blessed on that particular walk through the skink habitat because I saw one. They're much bigger than I expected them to be. The first one I've ever seen, despite all the times I've walked and looked. So that, that's a good sign. Now I'm now at the bottom of the stairs and I'm walking through this year's resident group of, uh, of crows. There's just dozens and dozens of them. It's really quite dramatic. So I'm walking through fairly cautiously. They sort of stare at me like they're... I'm very much on their territory. I'm not actually frightened of them, but they have great authority and presence. They're kind of walking in the path in front of me, strutting in a very deliberate way. And um, I'm really getting the impression that I am the intruder here, as indeed I am. So these wetlands, they are important. They're a um I've described them in the past of a contemporary reassertion of the ancient landscape and what I think I've meant when I've said that is that this area used to be wetlands and then in 2005 it was turned into wetlands once more. So the Trinwar and Tambor wetlands were built in 2005 for storm drainage and water purification and that is to fulfil the functions that the wetlands that once existed here performed. They're two linked ponds and the treatment pond has a dense dent, pl banks densely planted with native plants that treat the water naturally and that cleaner water, clean water goes to the storage pond that's then used to water Royal Park or some of it's left through to, um, depending how much, to Port Phillip Bay. And this is part of the city's recent strategy of using soft rather than hard methods like concrete drains to absorb the water that, that falls and flows through the Yarra's catchment area. We're actually sort of very close to Mooney Creek here, I, I assume actually these wetlands were an extension of Mooney, Mooney Ponds Creek. So um, if you look around, it's such a beautiful, beautiful spot. Um, there's she-oaks that were once present throughout, throughout Melbourne's landscape in vast numbers and you can see their long leaves shivering in the, in the morning breeze. Uh, not this morning, but other mornings I found ringtail possums curled up in their dray. They're the yellow New Holland honey eaters and they're flitting, uh, they're flitting through the hedges of spiny lignum, which is one of the plants that was planted. It's like a large hedge which has been planted for filtration purposes. In fact, this area has been so successful at attracting birds that it's become damaged through to um, overpopulation. So at the moment there's a bit of cleaning work done and you won't see as many birds as usual. but. On a good day, you will see Eurasian coots, which are dark water birds with white foreheads, dusky moorhens, purple swamp hens, which have red bills and dark blue plumage, Pacific black ducks, which are actually brown and have stripes above and below their eye, Australasian grebes um, pulling up sort of those long stringy bits of vegetation, aquatic vegetation, to, fill, to build their pl floating platforms. The wattle birds, which we, we saw higher up the hill, Willy Wagtails and Welcome Swallows are enjoying the cleared area and looking for insects. There is, my favourite birds in Melbourne are actually here and I'm walking towards them now and that's the Royal Park's famous, famous pair of, of uh, tawny frogmouths. Um, sometimes you'll have a dozen people standing around the tree, the, the gum that they're in, looking 
looking at this poor mother who has, I think, two or even three babies under her wing. I'm not sure. I haven't actually succeeded in seeing the babies, even though Tawny's are fledging all over Melbourne, for those who know these things. Bird watching has become one of the a real thing during the pandemic i mean obviously it's it's a activity that people have always loved but in recent months it's really become so important to people and i noticed that because of visiting the tawny frogmouth every year but this is the first year when i've seen so many people standing and looking at staring at the mum who i think would really rather that they weren't other birds that you'll see uh, include actually lorikeets and they've been reappearing in melbourne after decades of absence because of the um in the 1970s uh, a lot of gardens introduced native plants and so it's not enough just to have native plants in royal park you need them all through melbourne they need habitats habitats need to join up if you like and so there are a lot of lorikeets here you find them particularly in the um, little hollows sticking their heads out of the hollows are some of the older older trees around around here so i'm now standing under my tawny frogmouth tree um, i'm going to have to put my mask on and be quiet very soon i think because there are quite a few people enjoying this special space so I'm standing by Trinwar and Tambor, close to the boundary, boundary line, which is the Westgate Freeway, and Melbourne Gateway is reflected in the waters of the lagoon, the striking red and columns shimmering, reminding us of the ways in which the old Melbourne and new old Nam, as it was once known, or should still be known, and, and, and newer Melbourne, more contemporary Melbourne, kind of meet in this place. You can continue to walk around. There's a path around the wetlands and there are bird hides should you want to see them. But I'm going to leave you to it now. I'm just going to look out for my mum. In fact, she's gone from the nest and I heard about this a couple of days ago. I think the babies have fledged, which means she's not stuck in the same spot anymore. But still, it's quite a shock to realise that she is no longer here. I'm feeling slightly bereft. So I will sit down and compose myself and I'll leave you to enjoy this really special space. I'd like to thank once again the traditional elders of this land. I would also like to thank Martin Friedel for allowing us to enjoy his really beautiful compositions and create a spun out of the, the sounds of rural park over the last few months. And I would like to thank Akka for the opportunity to to share my enormous pleasure and enthusiasm for this very special part of Melbourne. Um, I hope you got something out of it. Thank you.
Six Walks has been commissioned by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art as part of the exhibition Who's Afraid of Public Space? For more information about the exhibition and to listen to other walks in this series, please visit ACCA's website, acca.melbourne. ACCA acknowledges the support of Creative Victoria in the development of the Six Walks series.